Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I'm very happy that the leaders this evening tasked the Commission with shaping our collective response. We will indeed carry out a thorough assessment of the impact of the crisis on the overall European economy. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and that was European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen at the end of Thursday's video conference of EU leaders. To sum it up, they found a way not to disagree by deciding in advance not to try to agree. Instead, they asked von der Leyen's commission to come up with a plan for a fund to help Europe's economy recover from the coronavirus and to figure out how that would work with the EU's long-term budget. Von der Leyen outlined some of her thinking, but the big questions remain to be resolved and we'll get to those in just a few minutes with our podcast panel when we also bid a fond farewell for now to Annabelle. But first, let's go behind the scenes of those meetings of EU leaders in normal times and in the corona era with a couple of political colleagues. Joining us now are our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. And our senior EU reporter, Jacopo Baragazzi. Hi, Jacopo. Hi. So we're going to continue our kind of virtual tour of Brussels, where we've been looking at the different uh, institutions, EU institutions, how they normally work and how they're working differently, if at all, uh, in the time of the coronavirus pandemic. And so today we're looking at the the Council of the EU and at the European Council. And um, for non-Brussels bubble dwellers, those are two different but related institutions. Jacopo, let's start with the Council of the EU, which is where you know, the member countries come together at different levels, can be ministers, can be ambassadors, can be officials. How does that normally work? How do you normally cover it? And how is it operating at the moment, you know, at the time of social distancing and travel bans and and all of that? How has it changed? The council is a a legislative body, as the the, the European Council is not. And uh, uh, the council uh, is now operating in a completely different way because it's operating uh, mainly through video conferences, which means uh, that uh, this is making the decision process more difficult uh, because uh, if then you take a decision, you need the day after to do a written procedure. Um, That's the technical level. But it also has uh, political implications because because uh, this means that uh, the capitals are uh, more running the show, uh, because in many cases uh, these uh, uh, conferences are held straight from the capitals because ministers are not traveling. And so uh, uh, this means uh, also that there are conferences organized by the commission for the coordination of ministers, and especially in the case of the video conference organized by the commission among, for example, interior ministers to coordinate the measures on internal borders, 
especially in that case, you hear uh, diplomats complaining uh, that uh, the result, the outcome of these conferences go straight to the capitals and they are cut off here. And let's move up to the European Council level, which is the leaders, the heads of state and government. Uh, we're recording uh, just ahead of a kind of virtual version of one of those. But normally those are a big occasion. Uh, David, you normally anchor our coverage of those summits. Um, I guess you came to them fairly new a few years ago. And uh, maybe describe your impressions of a, of a European Council in, in full flow as you as you kind of got to know it. Well, the European Council summits are quite a spectacle, uh, very dramatic for people who've never experienced them before, because you walk into the original uh, council building, the Justice Lipsius building, and the atrium, which is quite large, is turned into a giant press room. And you have literally hundreds and hundreds of journalists who are gathered around, sitting at desks, working away. And then on the balconies above, you have TV crews that are set up that are recording uh, giant screens, keeping track of uh, some of the action when there is a press conference going on in the press room. And it's quite a dynamic process back and forth as reporters are dealing uh, with uh, the press conferences that happen as speakers, say the uh, parliament president, who usually begins with a presentation to the heads of state and government, comes out and will give a press conference. Uh, toward the end, there are uh, a series of national briefings. But in between reporters, and, and you have to keep in mind all the national uh, press that's there, focused on their own country, their own leader, uh, dealing with their sources behind the scenes, uh, some who might be in the room, some of whom are gathered in the hallways or in other small meeting rooms. And uh, this goes on uh, for two days often, uh, sometimes through the night, uh, quite a ritual uh, unique to the European Union and to Brussels. Now, uh, the leaders are getting quite good at this video conference summit, the virtual summit, but it's a totally different dynamic uh, for them as well because they can't break out and sort of confer on the side. And on the video conference, they mostly have to just go in order uh, with uh, now Charles Michel, the council president, calling on the heads of state and government to speak in order. But to get into any kind of negotiation is very, very difficult. Uh, this is what they've discovered. And so it's more talking at your colleagues than talking with your colleagues. And this changes, uh, you know, certainly the results, makes it harder to come to, uh, to even informal joint conclusions uh, and makes it harder, again, as we've seen when there are disagreements, to, to work those out when you can sort of pull, pull somebody aside and, and maybe calm them down, uh, talk them off the ledge. Uh, that's not as easy as it normally is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, it just, um, you know, we're talking ahead of, of a kind of virtual summit, which is going to look at the economic response to the the crisis. And um, also that is related to the whole uh, big issue of the EU budget, which was um, the subject of the last physical summit that we all uh, attended, and is also a very contentious issue. And it's interesting, we're hearing officials now really saying, there's no way, way we can actually agree the budget virtually, we're going to have to have a face to face process summit to do this. Jacopo, um, without giving away any of our trade secrets, how does this kind of uh, virtual summit make our job different and in some ways more difficult in terms of how we gather information about what's going on? It has a, quite a, an impact because uh, of many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that uh, often uh, the best way is not to speak uh, over the phone, but uh, to meet physically. 
this for many reasons uh, because uh, you don't want to be listened you, and especially some countries in some countries there is a mentality that if you speak over the phone is dangerous uh, because there are too many poss- possibly there are too many years all this level of the work uh, which was uh, carried out physically walking around and uh, um, before the crisis um, I have, uh, like everybody, an app that counts uh, how many steps you do every day. <laughs> and uh, on, aver- on average, on average, my 10,000 uh, steps, my 10 kilometers a day were there in the app because, you know, you have to walk around uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, and then uh, you get a coffee with that one there. And, uh, and often, you know, the way you say is exactly like for leaders, you know, the way somebody is telling you something, if you can look at his face, is completely different than uh, over the phone. And especially in, in, in an environment like the diplomatic environment, where you don't want to be too explicit often on certain things, body language is an important part of communication. Yeah. David, how do you think, uh, how do you observe that this changes the power dynamics a bit? We've talked about, uh, you know, more power probably being with the capitals here, the the national diplomats and officials who are based in Brussels, who often are the kind of key point people, are sometimes out of the loop. But what about with regards to people like European Council President Charles Michel, maybe uh, the Council uh, Secretary General as well? Are they more or less powerful in this kind of virtual situation? For sure, the Council President Charles Michel, as the convener of the European Council, his authority increases as he controls who is on screen, right, in terms of the video conference, because there isn't that ability. I don't think they necessarily interrupt each other all that much in person, but it certainly does allow Charles Michel to control the pace a little bit more. They know that they have to run through this list of leaders and give everybody their fair time. As Jacopo was describing, this is a very ritualistic process. And yet, as bureaucratic as it might seem, there are extremely important things that normally happen at a traditional European Council, where the joint written conclusions that they issue have the most powerful force of authority in the EU. These are the heads of state and government, the national leaders, all representing their elected governments who come together. And when they say, this is what the EU is going to do, indeed, this is what the EU will do. And the negotiations over that document begin long before they get into the room. Although the most crucial negotiations often happen in that room and they settle on it and they come out and they publish it and tell all of us what's been done. And there's a press conference where we can ask about it. And because these video conferences don't have that same legal force, there isn't the negotiation over the document. Now, there was a situation where Emmanuel Macron maybe set an example of this when he hosted the G7 Leader Summit in Biarritz and decided because he was worried about Donald Trump blowing up the conclusions that, okay, he's going to be super smart and there just won't be any conclusions. If there are no conclusions, then neither Donald Trump nor any other leader can torpedo them at the end. And in fact, what happens then is you have in the case of the G7, seven leaders go in and seven leaders come out saying very different things about what happened. So in fact, it's a good strategy in one sense. Nobody can torpedo the conclusions. On the other hand, you don't have clear agreement on what was said and done. So that's where Charles Michel's power 
is vastly increased here. He will presumably today have presidential conclusions. He doesn't need everybody else's agreement to put those out. So you don't have the Italian prime minister, Giuseppe Conte, potentially able to threaten to dismantle everything, upend the whole meeting, because he's not happy with what's been decided uh, with the economic recovery. But at the same time, Charles Michel can make his own presidential conclusions. They're not binding on anyone else. And so all these leaders will, of course, have their own soapbox in their national capitals. They can come out and say, no, we don't agree about this or we don't agree about that. Nothing was actually decided, which to some degree legally is true. And they will have to play out the same process at some point in the room together. As you point out with the budget, it's just impossible. They know that they need that physical interaction to break off, to talk one by one by one and make sure that every country, every leader is getting certain things that they need or that certain red lines are not being crossed. And to try to do that, the technology is not quite there yet. At some point, maybe it will be. But right now, politics does remain at core a human business. Yeah, maybe at some point we'll get like a, vir- a real virtual reality uh, summit, right, where they all put on the headsets. Um, David, did you want to jump in with something else? Just getting back to the trade secrets of the coverage, you know, some things are not harder virtually because, of course, we journalists are never in that room with the heads of state and government. Now, of course, it makes it harder because there are fewer other people in that room, but there's a certain amount of remote work that we've always had to do, whether we are a few floors below them in the building next door or kilometers and kilometers away, maybe thousands of kilometers away working by remote because they are all back in their capitals. So there are some dynamics that don't change at all and other things that are completely different. Yeah, true. Well, we'll see how this one uh, plays out tonight. Uh, we'll let you get back to preparing for it. Uh, Jacopo, David, thanks very much. And now it's time for our podcast panel. So it's welcome back to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. Hi to Matt Karnichnik in Germany. Hi there. And uh, for the final time, for a little while anyway, hello to Annabelle Dixon in Norwich. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And um, maybe you want to explain why it's your final time for a little while. I am off on maternity leave tomorrow, so I'm having a pandemic baby, hopefully in the next um, few weeks. When's your due date? Um, It's May the 4th, Star Wars Day. All right. Well, we will be uh, awaiting uh, good news there. And as it is your last podcast for a while, and also because I hear you're going to be following in my uh, pioneering journalistic footsteps uh, by hosting a virtual pub quiz uh, later today, uh, Annabelle, uh, we have a we have a special intro for you. And now, Are you getting the full works Irish. here? Annabelle, are you even old enough to know what that is? I recognise it. You better explain. Listen to that music. I mean, that is a proper intro. So this is a this was a thing called Sale of the Century, which was a, a massive, massive quiz. It probably had like 18 million people watching it because there was frankly nothing else to do in Britain in the 70s and 80s, hosted by uh, Nicholas Parsons. And it did come live from Norwich, just like you. Um, but let's get into the serious stuff. We are recording ahead of the latest uh, video conference of EU leaders, uh, which, um, once again, the big topic is going to be the economic recovery, uh, how it should be tackled, how it should be funded. There are many plans on the table, and it looks, as we record, that um, 
everyone's playing down expectations. The idea is there won't be a final decision tonight. There will be a debate, but in a sense, there'll be more work to be done before they, they settle on the on the details. Matt, do you want to just kind of set the scene? And, and do you think there's a kind of landing zone coming into view here as to as to how this might play out? Well, I did, I did think we're starting to get sort of the contours of what it might eventually look like. And the, the plumbing really isn't that uh, important at the end of the day. I think what's more important is how much money are they going to be willing to spend on this and and how is that money going to be raised? And I think what came out today that was interesting was you know, Merkel, who gives a, a speech typically to the Bundestag before every EU summit, uh, said in her remarks today that you know people shouldn't expect that there'll be a final deal. We need to work out the details and, and so forth. And I think the reason for that is, is that she hasn't really even begun in Germany to lay the groundwork here for what's coming. There, there hasn't been much of a public debate at all on this issue. They seem to be in Berlin to be pushing this alternative structure, which uh, would see the funding go via the European budget, which a lot of people think is a mistake, because at the end of the day, that would be more expensive probably than raising money through a bond sale, uh, because you could, you know, put a 30-year um you know, uh, tenure on the bond. And then in 30 years, you could refinance it and it wouldn't come directly out of anybody's coffers. But the the resistance in Germany to this common debt issuance is, is so intense still that I think it's going to be very difficult for Merkel to give what you know, Prime Minister Conte is asking for and uh, Emmanuel Macron and others, which is more of a big bang solution uh, that could see a fund created with a trillion or more. The Spanish are asking for 1.5 trillion. Um, I think at this point, from a Berlin perspective, that's totally unrealistic. Yeah. Reem, where does, was, does France stand on, on all of this? If I can jump off of what Matt was just saying, uh, there are real, very substantive differences between Berlin and Paris today, even though perhaps both sides are trying to to downplay um, those and kind of... Uh, blame Spain or or Italy. We were speaking to French officials um, on Wednesday, and uh, they set out three very clear conditions. Um, they're not saying they're for or against the uh, solution that would come through the European budget. What they're saying is the substance is more important. Like you were saying, Matt, it's not about the piping so much. And they're... Um, conditions are that the amount of money that is made available is substantive and on par with the demands and requirements of, you know, the, the, the crisis that we're all facing. They're also very, very keen on it being on a long-term um, uh, agenda so that people don't feel like they need to repay immediately because they say uh, the complete effects, economic effects of this crisis are not clear at this stage. And the third thing is they are very, very keen on what they call transfers, because for them, it's about solidarity. Solidarity has been a main talking point for Macron and his team from the beginning over the past few weeks. And so they too were saying, we're not expecting a, a deal on Thursday. But also what was interesting is that one of them said they are willing to sort of say no to a current European budget deal and go for what they called, uh, you know, transition budgets. So an annual budget for 2021 and so on and so forth until they can reach 
a deal that is commensurate with the crisis we're facing. Right. I thought that was an interesting card to play. I mean, it's being played by officials who are not um, you know, speaking on the record. But I, I do think that was a bit of a signal from France, whether it was uh, you know, just strategy or you know, whether they would actually go that far. But it does highlight another uh, difficulty with uh, wrapping this issue into the EU budget. I mean, the EU budget is already a very contentious thing. There are a million different fights going on within that whole budget battle. And if you add this on top of it, which is also complex and contentious, you know, the risk is you get really bogged down. Uh, And I thought that was an interesting card to play from France to say, well, you know, if we don't get a budget that we like, we'll just kind of try and roll things over and do a contingency budget. Um, You know, that is not an easy uh, prospect either, because um, as some of our listeners will know, the current budget, which runs out at the end of this year, is for a budget of of 28 countries, including the UK, which is a big net contributor to that budget. So you can't just simply kind of copy and paste this year's budget into next years because if things go as um, well at least as the UK wants them to go which means the transition ends at the end of this year there are no UK contributions to any kind of EU budget and so there's a big black hole there so it's all um, I think very much still up in the air um, and I I suspect we're going to end up with some kind of hybrid of of all the the models that we've talked about Um, but let's switch to the UK Annabelle because the the big talking point is kind of related to Brexit as well but also to the coronavirus and that's been um, the issue of joint procurement whether the UK should have or is joining in a kind of EU joint procurement effort for for medical equipment or PPE as we've all come to to know it you just um, run us through it was a fairly extraordinary uh, day the other day right Uh, involving the the top civil servant in the foreign office yeah, it's been an extraordinary story. It's been sort of rumbling along for a while. First of all, it emerged, the EU said, you know, we could be part of it if we wanted to. And then there was a day um, at the end of March where initially Downing Street said, we're not part of the EU, we're not being part of it. There was all sorts of political pressure from the more remainery parties, let's say the Liberal Democrats, saying, hold on a sec, if we can be part of this, why wouldn't we if it means we might have access to more ventilators, more protective equipment. And Downing Street later that day clarified that it was actually um, more cock-up rather than conspiracy that we weren't part of it. And it was a sort of administrative oversight um, that we hadn't applied. And then it all went quiet until Monday when Simon MacDonald, who's the permanent secretary or he's head of the diplomatic service, so the top civil servant at the Foreign Office um, was in front of a select committee and um, basically told MPs that it had been a political decision. Um, The mission in Brussels had briefed ministers. They knew exactly what was on offer and um, ministers had made the decision not to take part for for political reasons. And obviously there was sort of huge uproar about an hour later at the, the, the daily press conference. Matthew Hancock, the health secretary, contradicted him and said, you know, it wasn't a political decision. And then a couple of hours later, McDonald's was forced to issue this letter clarifying his position saying, no, 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 it was it was it wasn't political after all. Um, So it really was a, a complete shambles. And I mean, it really does show that even though we thought COVID and leaving the EU on January the 1st has sort of moved us past this sort of era where we saw everything through a Brexit prism, it's really kind of brought to the surface all of those particular sort of dynamics in British politics. 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, these are, you know, decisions, it seems to me this whole sort of debate over whether it's a political decision, I mean, unless it really was an administrative error, I mean, ultimately, you know, these are decisions made by politicians. I mean, they are political decisions. It's amazing how kind of het up people get about that. But I would say, yeah, it just does feel like it's, you know, it's another it's another sign of how that divide is still a real sort of fault line in British politics. And I would say, actually, not just in the UK, because the European Commission has briefed, I would say, unusually aggressively about this, making very clear that Britain had ample opportunity to take part. And um, I do not think they would be talking in these terms about a current member of the EU. They'd be being a lot more circumspect. So I think we can see that there's a kind of, if you like, a bit of afters uh, also on the on the Brussels side. And of course, the thing to note in all of this is that these schemes so far have not actually delivered any equipment as far as we can tell uh, they may well be about to do so they may do in the future but it's a as you know it's a classic kind of thing that everybody gets very hit up about but if you're kind of on the front line of this crisis at the moment it hasn't made any difference to you one way or the other right yeah and i think that's why at the moment downing street have sort of feel they're in an okay position um because they can point to the fact it hasn't yet delivered maybe in a couple of weeks when I'm sure the European Commission will release all sorts of pictures of ample supplies, mountains of face masks and mountains of aprons arriving at hospitals around the continent, um, it might be a different matter. And I'm sure the government's political opponents will seize, seize on it at that moment. Yeah, I did want to do because, um, you know, although the coronavirus is dominating everything at the moment, uh, there are other things going on in the world. We've already talked for a long time, but let's try and do a quick fire, you know, not corona, but important things that have happened over the last few weeks that may have gone a bit under the radar. Uh, Maybe I'll start with a couple of things from from the Balkans, something that we talked about quite a bit on the podcast before uh, the crisis hit was the whole question of EU enlargement and something that went probably less noticed than otherwise would have was the fact that the EU did agree to give the green light to Albania and North Macedonia to begin membership talks, uh, you know, potentially historic decision. And I would say that decision may actually have been eased a little bit by this crisis because I think some countries that were worried about the signal that that would send domestically inside the EU may well have calculated that uh, people's attention was elsewhere and so it was easier to kind of wave this through, if you like. Although, you know, they've made several false starts and, you know, there was a a very widespread view that these countries had met the criteria to at least be given the green light. You know, it was still a highly political decision and I think it was that part of it was made a bit easier by attention uh, being elsewhere. What else does anybody have on their, uh, you know, not corona but important list? Well, I had an interesting story from Berlin you know, this is a story that's been around for a number of years, and it might have escaped some people's notice that the airport in Berlin, which uh, yeah. was supposed to have opened 10 years ago, uh, is well, almost 10 years ago anyway, is going to open as planned on October 31st, they're saying, despite corona. Uh, the question is whether there'll be any, any planes at that point uh, to fly in and out, but they're, they're going to be ready to go. Well, when you say as planned, I mean, you know, that's as, as planned after many other plans exactly. uh, failed. Exactly. Yeah, that's an incredible story. Okay, that's what that's one to watch. Maybe we'll, yeah, let's see if we're actually able to fly into that airport when it finally opens. Reem, what was yours? 
I'm sorry, I, as always, it's always going to be kind of conflict and geopolitics with me. But Libya, which is a conflict that is very important uh, and in the neighborhood of, of the EU and Europe, has continued to sort of go on as everyone has been distracted by coronavirus. Haftar, who, you know, the French support and, and uh, the Italians don't, has continued to uh, bomb hospitals uh, in, in Tripoli. And what's also been a very interesting development in this is that there have been reports um, out of Syria that the Russians have been now sending uh, fighters, Syrian fighters, who have, you know, so-called reconciled with the regime to fight on the side of Haftar, mirroring what the Turks did on the side of the government of national accord, as it's known in, in Tripoli. But, you know, surprisingly, uh, when the Turk, when Turkey did that, Macron and the French government had some very, very tough words uh, denouncing what Turkey did. But so far, they haven't said a word about what Russia has been doing, maybe perhaps because Russia's on their side in that conflict. Annabelle, what's yours? Uh, not Corona, but important. Um, I'm afraid it's Brexit. The talks <laughs> continued this week um, over video link. And um, we had quite an interesting briefing from number 10 when asked, um, come on, are you just going to give up and extend the transition? The line now is we need to leave um, the EU um, so that we can recover post-corona. So um, that's the new government line well. as to why we're pushing ahead and we're not going to let corona get in the way of... Uh, of our departure. Okay. Well, at least your child will be born free. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, anyway, that, I mean, that when we say not corona, but important, I mean, that's actually the most important thing for you, right? You're going to have a baby in a couple of weeks. So, you know, maybe that puts things in perspective too. Uh, Annabelle, we're going to miss you. We wish you all the best. We will call on your uh, colleagues from the UK team to keep us informed about what's going on uh, in the UK. But in the meantime, all the very best. Hope everything goes smoothly and we'll be sure to let listeners know uh, once, you know, the big news has happened. Thank you. Don't forget to send pictures. Yeah, there we'll we go. And I'll, be, I'll be listening. I'll be listening during the late night feeds. I never had I never had Matt as a baby pictures guy. There oh, you go. I love baby pictures. I love baby pictures. <laughs> there we go. Well, on that bombshell, as they say yeah. in a very there famous uh, TV show, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Matt, Reem, Annabelle, thanks very much. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Please also consider leaving us a review and clicking some stars. And you can always send us feedback and ideas for guests and topics to discuss to podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.